Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. The room seems just a little bit subdued today compared to what it sometimes seems. I don't really know why. Um, maybe some of the heaviness, you know, how much stuff goes on between, like, in the last six or seven days. I know some of you don't watch a lot of news, but you can't, you can't uh, not be aware of some of the really uh, devastating things that go on. But I, I was uh, noticing when we put the giving uh, slide up there that um, um, you may not be aware of this, but I just wanted to point out, because I, I heard someone say a little while ago, how come only 10% goes to benevolent or special offering? Uh, what you need to be aware of is that we have benevolence in our regular budget, and that the 10% of the special offering is uh, just a way of bumping that those funds up, whereas, uh, whereas Mount Traber, we have in our regular budget, but I think it's only for $1,000 or something like that. And uh, property development is not in our budget at all, our regular budget. So that's, that's why those things uh, happen the way they do. And I thought you might be interested to know that as you prepare uh, your heart or allow the Lord to prepare your heart for the opportunity. That's next Sunday morning, which is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, next Sunday. Um, this Friday coming being Good Friday. And today being Palm Sunday um, just before we get into the message time today, I don't know if you're, if you're are you ready? It seems like the morning's gone fast today. And it's like, uh, it's like uh, are we through that part already where we get to have our nap or what? You know? um, <laughs> are we ready to, you know, to dig into to the word? If we have our hearts been prepared enough for that? Um, I trust we have. I want to also start by just mentioning, those of you who are joining us online, I want to just say I really appreciate you. Uh, I know that there are people who are part of our church family who are not in the room this morning for reasons that uh, are very legitimate reasons, and, uh, and I've spoken with some of them, and, and, uh, and these are uh, days when uh, I'm so grateful for the technology that allow people, even when they cannot be here in the room in person, that they can still participate, still join us online. And I want to say that the message that God has laid on my heart this morning is just as applicable in your life as it is in the lives, uh, uh, the lives of us who are gathered in this room this morning. And so I hope and pray that as uh, I make my way through what God has allowed me to prepare, that, that you will be uh, blessed by it and challenged by it and that God will use it in, in your life. And I'm, I'm confident in his grace that he will. Uh, the biblical portion, as uh, Josh mentioned, that we're into this morning in the sermon time is Luke chapter 19. The events of that monumental day when uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that cult that had never been rid, rid, uh, ridden before. Palm Sunday, we call it. Uh, it's a, a great understatement to say that it was a, a day of great expectations. Uh, the message this morning is entitled Expectations Versus Reality. But before we get into uh, the, the um, uh, scripture, uh, I want for you just to think for a, a little bit about expectations in general. When we were talking about this as pastors a few weeks back, Josh asked me if I was familiar with some of the expectation versus reality memes that have been floating around social media, and I initially said, no, I don't think so. But then when he started to talk about them, I realized, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I've seen those. I've seen those, and maybe you have as well. Let's take a look at just a few. I, I picked a, just a few. Um, there's, here, here's one. Jackson's turning five. Let's make him a cake. Uh, that's the expectation, and... This is, uh, in this case, was the reality. <laughs> Poor Jackson. <laughs> uh, uh, how, about, uh, how about this? Pet owners will appreciate this next one. Children playing with dogs. Expectation 
and reality. Oh, let's get a puppy, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then here's another one. Uh, some of you guys will appreciate this. What I think I look like when I'm driving, and then there is the reality of what I really look like when I'm driving. I think, unless we're stuck. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, I think we have another one. It does look like. <laughs> I have that picture actually. Uh, do we have another one there, Aiden? The computer's freezing up. All right. Well, we may just have to go on over there. Yeah. Taking ID picture. How many of you can sympathize? Okay. So uh, you go in, you get your ID picture taken, and, and that's, that's what happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So today we're talking about expectations versus reality, and, and we're talking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah and King. And, and so there's the expectation, the messianic expectations of the people as their king comes, and they all shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. And of course, the reality, as we know, uh, it looks more like that. And so that's what we're talking about uh, Today, the advanced reading that we sent out uh, for the message this morning was Luke chapter 19. And Luke chapter 19 begins with the words, He entered Jericho, he being Jesus. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho. Now, to put it in context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been weaving his way from north to south, from the north of Galilee. Uh, towards Jerusalem. And in his three years of public uh, ministry, Jesus traveled around Israel walking from town to town. And uh, though he uh, appears to have spent most of his time in the Galilee region, he did make several trips to Jerusalem during those years. But this was to be his final one because he was going there to die. Now, back in Luke chapter 9, uh, it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The narrative that follows uh, from Luke 9, 51, moving forward to where we are today in Luke 19, is uh, set on this slow, steady journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. The phrase, he set his face, draws on a Semitic idiom which conveys resolution or determination. Uh, he was bound for Jerusalem and nothing would deter him. You could say that Jesus was uh, more determined to die than you and I would be uh, resolved to not die. And Jericho was and is the last major stopping point on the road located at the bottom of the incline where the road swings up from the Jordan River Valley to Mount Zion in the beautiful city. So that's our context. And Luke chapter 19, verse 1 uh, and 2 says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And then verse 2 says, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus and the story of Zacchaeus is quite amazing because Zacchaeus was a tax collector, it says there in verse 2. And more than that, he was a chief tax collector. Remember when Paul said, I am the chief of sinners? Well, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And it says he was rich. Now, the text doesn't come right out and say that he got rich by ill gain, but it's clearly implied in the text. And Zacchaeus comes right out and publicly confesses as much in verses 7 and 8. And the story of Zacchaeus is an amazing account of a man who recognizes and acknowledges his own personal sinfulness and his need of a Savior like Jesus. But Zacchaeus, and the story of Zacchaeus also sets up the parable that follows, which uh, immediately precedes the uh, account, Luke's account, of the triumphal, triumphal entry uh, later in this chapter, chapter 19. I hope, I hope you took the time to read ahead, because we're not going to read all through Luke 19 this morning. 
And uh, these passages, this, uh, Zacchaeus and the, uh, the parable of the ten minus that, that follow the story of, Luke, uh, of uh, Zacchaeus, they, are, uh, uh, they have everything to do with the subject of our expectations and the reality of our situation. Our expectations and the reality of the situation. How so? Well, if you take a look at verses 9, 10, and 11 with me, uh, it says, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed or expected, you might say, that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now I want to pause for a moment and and ask this question. If the kingdom of God were to immediately appear, what would that mean for anyone who has yet to experience the salvation that Zacchaeus did? Just think on that as we continue to move through this morning, if you would. Have you ever read through the gospel accounts and wondered why Jesus didn't just come right out and declare himself as king? Why he even encouraged some of those he healed to not say anything about it? It can be confusing, but I, I, I think that we need to understand this in part by taking note that on several occasions we're told that he uh, slipped away from the crowds because they would have taken him and made him king right there and then. We're thinking about our expectations. And what I want for us to recognize today as we think these things through, is that our expectations are often the product of our own prejudiced imaginations rather than being rooted in reality. We imagine our our own version of the future. We imagine our own version of what the future should be like. We imagine our own version of what God should be like and what he should do. For example, he shouldn't or wouldn't allow any evil to happen. He'd answer all our prayers the way we want. And he'd get rid of all the bad guys. Here's another question. How important do you think it is that we allow God to reveal himself as he is rather than expecting him to fit our expectations? Just something else to think about as we continue this morning. You know, when it comes to the thoughts and expectations of the Jews of Jesus' day, the writings of the rabbis are very interesting. And someone who studied that material extensively and wrote on it extensively was a man named Alfred Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim was born in Vienna in 1825 to Jewish parents. He went to Hebrew school, and he was educated in the Talmud and the Torah, eventually attending university. He later immigrated to Hungary, where he became a personal, uh, where he became a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. He converted to Christianity. He accepted Christ as his Messiah. And he went on uh, to become an amazing biblical scholar, scholar, teaching languages, studying at Edinburgh, uh, Berlin, uh, was a select preacher at Oxford, and uh, Grinfield lecturer on the Septuagint. Um, you don't even know what the Septuagint is, and he was a master of these things. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of languages, right? The Septuagint being the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. 
Um, he is known particularly today for his excellent book, which I uh, couldn't more highly recommend, called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which he published in 1883. And of all the books in my library, I prize this one uh, so highly because it's an amazing deep dive into the Jewish world in the days of Christ with extensive commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but with expanded cultural historical background. It's fascinating stuff, but it's not for the faint of heart because uh, the volume that I refer to as the life and times of Jesus the Messiah is actually five books in one. And... uh, it, with 19 appendices, okay? We're talking this thick, okay? But, a, but an amazing book. And in that book, in uh, chapter 5 of book 2, that chapter is called, What Messiah Did the Jews Expect? Now, this might sound a little bit academic to you, okay? But just bear, bear with me here and listen to some of the words that Alfred Edersheim Uh, shares in that chapter. What Messiah did the Jews expect? And in in this chapter, he outlines a great number of things that the rabbis in the days of Jesus got right in terms of their expectations. And the reason that he says they got those things right was because... uh, their thinking was to a very large degree shaped by Scripture. Um, As you know, I mean, you read through the New Testament, uh, the the Gospel accounts, and and, and the uh, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and all of the, you know, the the priests are constantly referencing those Old Testament Scriptures, right? Because they studied them. They studied the the Scriptures probably more than, than most of us would ever think of studying Scriptures. So Edersheim outlines many of those things that the rabbis, the rabbis got right, and then he says this, and I'm quoting from him. He says, as the, the rabbinic ideas were at least based on the Old Testament, we need not wonder that they also embodied the chief features of the messianic history. Accordingly, a careful perusal of their scripture quotations shows that the main postulates of the New Testament concerning the Messiah are fully supported by rabbinic statements. They got a lot right. But later on in that chapter, he makes this most interesting observation. He says, and again I quote, in connection with what has been stated, Please understand, this guy has read all of that stuff you haven't read. And I confess, I haven't read 98% of it either. Uh, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, but he, after all that stuff, he says, in connection with what has been stated, one, must, one most important point must be kept in view. So far as their opinions can be gathered from their writings, the great doctrines of original sin and the sinfulness of our whole nature were not held by the ancient rabbis. And then he makes this statement. Listen, he says, In the absence of felt need of deliverance from sin, we can understand how rabbinic tradition found no place for the priestly office of the Messiah, and how even his claims to be the prophet of his people are almost entirely overshadowed by his appearance as their king and their deliverer. That little statement, in the absence of felt need of deliverance from sin, has been ringing in my head for the, for, uh, the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking through some of these thoughts. And if their expectations of the Messiah had nothing to do with a felt need, a felt need, a personal conviction of uh, of need for deliverance from sin, then what did it involve? It involved a king, a deliverer, a conquering king who would wield uh, absolute political power, judging the nations and freeing the nation of Israel from their oppression. In other words, the big idea would be that the Messiah, the coming deliverer, will fix 
the world. But not me, because it's the world that needs fixed, not me. Now, do you suppose, that we're talking 2,000 years ago, do you suppose that, that that line of thought ever rolls around in some of our heads? <laughs> Absence of felt need of deliverance from sin. What's he talking about? He's talking about the reality of our personal sinfulness. And the profound, one of the profound things about all this is how closely it mirrors the common view of our day. In our day, we see very little acknowledgement of personal sin, but a sure expectation that if there really were a God, he would simply fix the world. If we go back to the days of the Enlightenment, that has under, have formed much of contemporary thought. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's probably uh, at the center of, the, of that whole movement, said, there is no original perversity in the human heart. Man is naturally good. It is by our institutions alone that men become wicked. And, of course, the philosophy and resultant psychology of men like Rousseau and other founders of the modern mind, continues to dominate the popular thinking of most people in our day. The idea that I am good, and it's society that's corrupt. And that's what's messing up my life. And if God does exist, he should do something about that. Which, of course, is, is directly in opposition to what Jesus taught. Take a look at Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Out of the heart, Jesus said. Surely not my heart, Lord. Must be those bad people's hearts that he's talking about. I don't think so. Listen to what James says in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's in us. The problem is in us. It's not just out there somewhere. When it came to the expectations of the Jews in Jesus' day, they got a lot right. You know, the Greeks got a lot right too. But the cross, which was in the immediate future in Luke 19, which would kind of make it the present, but the cross, Paul says, was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. In our day, people get a lot of things right too, right? We should, we should be ready to affirm truth where we find truth because ultimately it's all coming from God, the creator of the world. But when we approach God or even the notion of God or develop a mindset or worldview without a personal recognition, without a recognition of personal sin and the reality, that reality, what do we miss? Well, think about it. We miss real guilt, we miss real justice, which means we miss our need for forgiveness, which means we miss grace, which means we miss Jesus. We don't need you here talking about your body and your blood, and we don't need your bloody religion. Ugh.
What is the story of Zacchaeus about and why is it there? It's not just a stop on the road, folks. (laughs) It really is part of the heart of the theology of, of Luke chapter 19. It's about salvation from personal sin. Even Heath Rickman's great aunt Ida, when he asked her about personal sanctification, he says she was nearly 80 years old, dear old Christian lady, nearly 80 years old and sweet as pie. And he, he said, Aunt Ida, what's, what's, you know, what's the secret of the life that I see that you have lived and how you know, God has worked in your life the way he has. And her response was, all I know is that the older I get and the more I know Jesus, the more God shows me how sinful I am and how much I need him. So here's the thing. Sin is real. Personal sin is real. Sin is a reality. And it's not just a reality out there somewhere. It's not just a reality in the lives of those bad people that we wish God would just snuff out. Sin is a reality in my heart and in your heart. And when we allow our expectations to form without being rooted in this critical reality, we miss the Messiah because we don't need him. Or or at least we don't need that kind of Messiah. Who wants a king who suffers and dies? Do you remember what they said to Jesus, uh, said of him when he hung on the cross? They said, he saved others. He can't even save himself. If he is the king of Israel, this is chapter uh, 27 of Matthew, verse 42, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. (laughs) What kind of Messiah were they looking for? What kind of Messiah do we expect? What are our expectations for God's working in our world? Our expectations are shaped by what we believe. And when we choose to believe that which is removed from reality, our expectations fail. A lot of the time I see people expecting God just to tell them how awesome they are. That's a very common uh, attitude in our world. And, and, the, and there is some truth in that because the Bible says that we're made in the image of God. David said to the Lord, I, you know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There is that reality, but then there's this whole other reality starting with Genesis chapter 3 and going all the way through biblical history and all the way through extra biblical history and all the way through your and my personal history, which is the reality of personal sin. If we're going to be honest, if we're going to uh, be honest with ourselves before God and the expectation that the Jews in general had and the key influencers within the, the culture and the society had with regard to the Messiah, they were shaped much by Scripture, but their interpretation of Scripture was skewed by the prejudicial nature of their hearts Does that happen to us? Would we ever blame others while failing to own our own stuff? Probably the bulk of effective counseling is targeted right at that thing right there. It's called denial. And it's a bigger problem than anything else I've ever encountered in my life or in the lives of other people. How are we doing time-wise? Okay, let's just shift up one gear. The ten minas, the parable of the ten miners. Minas, not miners. 
although that would be a good parable too, probably. But ten, the ten minas, we're talking money here. Um, the parable of ten minas in uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 27, which is a, a significant uh, chunk of that chapter. It's all about the servants of the king and uh, what those servants should be doing while they wait for the return of the king. In order for that to happen, the king has to go away, right? And then come back, right? In other words, it is set in what would not be happening immediately, but following the immediate events of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's a story about the kingdom that you and I get to invest our lives in right here and now today as we get to make a difference in this world as we allow God to work in us and through us, none of which would happen if the kingdom of God were to immediately appear. Now, I'm going to stretch your minds a little bit here because I want you to think about this in eschatological terms. Eschatology means the study of future events or what should we expect. Uh, But when you hear the word eschatology or eschatological, which is almost impossible to say, um, think about God's agenda and his timeline for human history. Past, present, and future. Now, let's just move forward past the immediate events of Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to check out a few scripture passages with me that are uh, that deal with that part of God's timeline. Starting in Acts, we're just going to look at a few here, but Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 36. Peter's preaching the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come, and, he, and he's preaching this sermon, and he says to them, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's speaking about Jesus, crucified, resurrected, resurrected now exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Paul calls the, the, the Spirit of God a deposit in Second. Corinthians 5, 5, and Ephesians chapter 1 as well. He tells Timothy that the gospel has been entrusted to you and I here in these days, in these times. What do we do with it? Um, verse 34, for, uh, for David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens. Uh, this is, a, and then he quotes directly from Psalm 110. A Psalm of David, Psalm 110, David wrote. uh, But he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, just quickly, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews references that same passage. In fact, that passage is referenced multiple times in the New Testament. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, he being God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Then over in chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, the world to come. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? That's Psalm 8. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then look what he says, the the writer of Hebrews, verse 8 continues. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see, yet see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he, by the grace of God, might taste death 
for everyone. Sit at my right hand until. One more passage before we get back and finish up chapter 19 of Luke. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When I say 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all the biblical scholars in the room go, oh yes, the resurrection passage. Uh, Because chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is all about the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of his resurrection. And in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians verses 20 through 27, we read these words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive going to be great to celebrate, uh, you know, over the next few weeks uh, with you on these points here. Each in his own order, it says verse 23, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, remember the story of the ten minus? The, the masters were going to return someday. Uh, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end talking eschatology here, okay? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the the, uh, kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Notice there, God, uh, the last enemy is death. You know, we tend to look at the circumstances of our lives and think, this is our problem. We need for things to change. God looks at us and he puts his finger right on our hearts and says, this is what needs to change. Death is the last enemy. It's not the only enemy. In fact, death is not God's primary concern because the Bible says sin brings death. And sin is what God's dealing with. Sin is God's priority, dealing with sin. And aren't you glad this morning that God has made provision for your sin and mine? How did he do that? He didn't do it by riding in Jerusalem and sitting on the throne. He did it by stumbling and crawling to that hill where he died for your sin and mine. When we're reading the the writings of the rabbis and others from the days of Jesus, they missed the main purpose of the law, which according to Paul was that all the world might stand guilty before God so that we would recognize our need for just just such a savior as the one he is. I want to say this to you this morning. morning. Jesus may uh, not be what you have come to expect, but be assured he is exactly what you need. And when you accept the reality of your personal sin before God, you will be ready to experience the reality of the salvation like Zacchaeus did. The reason I'm hammering away on this one thought this morning, which sounds pretty negative, talking about personal sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, and mine, is because it is absolutely critical for us. There is no salvation without the acknowledgement and the confession of personal sin. God has made provision for our sin, but that provision is only realized when we realize the reality of our sinfulness. And that's why, you know, I, I know we don't like to talk about sin. I don't like when people talk about my sin. I get very uncomfortable. And this message this morning is not a message that me as a Christian pastor is preaching to all you 
uh, non-Christians out there. <laughs> That's not the way this works at all. Um, because it's for us too. Every day of our lives, we, we, have, we have to deal with this. We have to own our sinfulness. We have to, what's John say, First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is, this is our big problem. It's not, just a big, it's not just a big problem for non-Christians or unbelievers. This is, this is all of our biggest problem. It's my biggest problem. Because my sinfulness, God has made provision for. The eternal Son of God gave his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. But if I don't confess my sin, if I don't acknowledge my sin, if I don't recognize and confess my sinfulness, where does that, where does that leave me? Let's finish out the chapter. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. He just finished the parable of the ten minas, which I hope you uh, spend some time reading through and thinking about that. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? It's almost like Jesus knew that was going to happen. And they said, and they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and they, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I just love that. I just love that. Not only did that cult recognize the Lord of glory, but even the rocks, <laughs> even the rocks. The crowd that day would have been very much aware of what Zechariah the prophet wrote in Zechariah chapter 9. And they would have unquestionably understood this as a fulfillment of prophecy of the, the coming Messiah. And they were excited. They were filled with expectation. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. How strange. You know, those people that show up at a party and they're depressed, and it kind of brings the whole mood down, eh? How do you think the people responded to Jesus' party attitude here? I'm sure they didn't understand it at all. He began to, to weep, and he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Interesting, isn't it? Oh, if we could just have peace in this world. If we could just get rid of all the bad people. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You just don't, you don't, you just don't see it. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down in the, to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will never leave one stone. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They wanted a king. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted a savior. They wanted a messiah. They were looking for one. They were watching for one. And they got a lot of things right. 
but they missed their Messiah because their expectancy wasn't rooted in reality. It's not, not that expectancy is a bad thing either. I mean, I think it was uh, uh, William Carey who's, who was uh, credited with saying something like expect uh, great things, attempt great things, or expect great things uh, from God, attempt great things for God. Um, but when our expectations are not rooted in reality, they fail us. I'm not going to comment on the last uh, four verses that conclude the chapter division, the cleansing of the temple, though they do have a great deal to do with what we've been talking about uh, today. But I just want to end uh, today with the thought that has dominated my mind the past number of days. And that is the question, what do we miss when our expectations are not rooted in reality? And the point that being that we need to get real. Jesus has made provision for our sinfulness, but, uh, but denial becomes our biggest problem when we fail to realize just how much we really need him. Not as our self-righteous minds tend to think he should be, but as he really is, the crucified and risen Lord of glory. I... Uh, Think of the, the quote that uh, Timothy Keller uh, said uh, of the gospel. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is everywhere through the New Testament. And Jesus talked about it all the time. All the time. One of the, the times that stands out in my mind was when he, he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And the publicans couldn't even lift his eyes up to God, but smote his chest and said, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What do we miss when our expectations are not rooted in reality? Sin is real. And the sin that exists in your heart and mind is, is real. The good news is that Christ has made provision for your sin and mine. That's why it was his priority. And if you've ever wondered why Jesus didn't just come and establish his kingdom, go home and look in the mirror. Because you were part of that reason. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And I just have a couple more simple questions. One for, one for those who may be listening, who've never confessed your personal sin to God, not to me, but to God, recognizing your need for that Savior, this, this, this Savior that, that we've been reading about, not as you would imagine him to be or maybe want him to be, but the Savior that he is in reality. If you've never done that, Your sin is real. And you can deny it until the day you stand before him. 
but someday you will bow your knee and someday you, your sin will be very, very obvious to you and you'll have to own it. But the good news is that if you do that now and receive Christ now, then you can stand on that day and say, Jesus died for me. He is my king. And that will make all the difference for all of eternity for you. But if you have done that, and you're standing here today or sitting in your living room and saying, yeah, but I am a Christian. I have given my heart to Jesus. I have confessed my sin, and I have, I have I've recognized it. I've owned it, and he's forgiven me. Well, when John wrote 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He was talking to Christians. The biggest issue I have in my life I've been a, a follower of Jesus for over 40 years, and the biggest issue I have in my life is owning my sin. Because then God can deal with it. Then he can work, he can work with that. But as long as I dig in my heels and say, you know, it's the woman you gave me, or whatever. Just saying. It might be your spouse, it might be your kids, it might be your employer, it might be your neighbor, it might be uh, Vladimir Putin. It can be anybody else that you might want to blame all of the world's problems on and all your problems on. But when you go home and look in the mirror, Christian, it's only as we own our stuff, our sinfulness, that we can appropriate the forgiveness and grace of Jesus in our lives every single day, which is how we live as Christians, because God can work with that. Thank you for, for your attention today. I pray God will bless these thoughts to our hearts and lives, and I encourage you, if you would, to pray with me. Lord, I pray that those who maybe need to make that first step of of faith and following you today, Lord. You know all of our hearts and you know each one who's in that situation. I just pray, Lord, that they would step across that line to recognize their sin and confess it to you and their need and that you would show them that they would experience the reality of your salvation. So pray for that, Lord, and, and for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see our need and your exceeding great grace to us every day, each day, each moment. Thank you, Lord, that you were willing to suffer and to die. become our king. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.